I spoke to a student at Mount Royal University in Calgary who told me that she thought abortion should be allowed when a mother was living in abject poverty. She said that if a mother can't even afford to put food on her own plate to cover her own rent, then why should we force her to bring a child into this world who's going to have a terrible quality of life and may even starve to death because of malnutrition? I started by, by acknowledging the hardship and, and saying, you know what, I agree with you that um, that would be an incredibly difficult situation for a mother to be faced with, mother and father to be faced with if, if the father's in the picture, and that we need to do whatever we can to improve the quality of life of the parents as well as the child. And I went on to ask her, imagine that a mother with a two-year-old child tragically lost her job and spiraled into a deep, deep state of poverty. She could no longer pay for rent, and so she was evicted from her home. She could no longer pay for the food that she needed to eat, nor her two-year-old child. Would we ever suggest that she kills her two-year-old child so that she can get her feet back under her, direct more of her finances towards herself, fill her own belly so that hopefully she can stay healthy and get a new job? The girl looked at me and said, no, obviously not. We're not going to kill a two-year-old child so that the mother can... Um, have more money for herself. And so I asked her, if we're not willing to kill a born child to resolve a situation involving abject poverty, then why are we willing to kill a preborn child? We moved from there towards talking about the humanity of the preborn and how they were equally human before birth as they are after birth. And after about a five-minute conversation, she walked away completely pro-life, recognizing that abortion is never okay to solve even the most difficult of circumstances, even those of abject poverty. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Welcome everyone to the Pro-Life Guys. My name is Peter, I'm the host of the show, and I am joined once again, as you can expect, by my main man, my co-host Cameron Cote. Good to see you again, my friend. It is good to be back, my friend. We are doing another episode. It is good to see your face virtually again, though it was even better last week to see you in person. Uh, it's good to be back to be recording another episode of this show. Yeah, absolutely. We had a, a great time. We were having a strategic retreat, a strategic planning retreat with CCBR to discuss with the entire team what our future would look like, uh, what sort of projects we'd be doing and all of that. So I got to see Cam once again and we got to sit down and have some conversations. So that was great. Uh, that was absolutely phenomenal. For those of you who are new to the program, we are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children in Canada and this is a podcast dedicated to giving you the tools you need to change minds 
and save lives from abortion. Well, Cam, we're doing something a little bit different today, aren't we, in terms of uh, what we're producing, what sort of content we're bringing forward today? That's right, Peter. We've gotten a ton of really good quality feedback from you, our listeners, on how to improve this podcast, how to make this podcast as meaningful of an experience as possible for each and every one of you. And we've realized we want to diversify the episodes that we're offering. We've already done a couple of general episodes talking about um, abortion victim photography, talking about the importance of focusing on the humanity of the preborn. And we've done one episode, last episode, we did a dissection of an interview given by Bill Nye, the not-so-science guy, um, talking about an interview that he did with Big Think. And today we want to start um, a, a slightly different style of episode. We want to do one that's kind of a, a deeper look into a particular challenge that we get, a particular circumstance, as it were, that we get when we're having conversations about abortion. Uh, walk through it, walk through how to approach it, how to respond to it, some things that we should have in the back of our mind, but probably not bring out um, initially. And and yeah, so we're excited to, to launch into this new kind of style of episode that's a little bit shorter, hopefully, um, and also a little bit more um, direct on a particular topic so that um, you, the listener, can really get what, what we want to consider the essentials of pro-life conversations. So these are some very, not necessarily basic, but the fundamentals and how to respond to particular arguments against abortion rather than a, a group dissection of an interview. We, we certainly want to do more of those. We certainly want to have more guests come on, but we think that this is going to be a valuable addition to the, the different kinds of episodes that we have on the show. Yeah, that's right. I know I'm a, I'm a big podcaster and I love listening to episodes with interviews, you know, uh, conversations about what people have done in the past and, and analyses on uh, different things happening in the movement. But I know for myself, if I want to talk to someone about a particular issue, uh, it's really, really helpful to learn what some of the, the strategies are, what some of the talking points are that we can bring forward to have meaningful conversations on that particular subject. And so that's what we want to do here, as Cam mentioned, uh, having those conversations. So this episode, we're going to frame it in uh, three different parts, as it were. Number one, we're going to set the stage uh, for what we're talking about, uh, we're going to uh, touch on our experience a little bit. As you know, Cam's mentioned this. He's had over 10,000 conversations on abortion. Uh, I haven't had that much, and I, I haven't counted them <laughs> either, so I'm not, I'm not really sure uh, how many conversations I've had. But we've had a lot of experience uh, on the streets, at universities, at colleges, high schools, uh, going door-to-door, and in various other places, talking to people about abortion and talking to them about Poverty, which is uh, what we're talking about today. So we're, we'll touch on our experience and all that to say we're going to talk about how to have a meaningful and effective and a winsome conversation uh, on this topic. So let's uh, let's dive right in, Cam. Let's do it. Sounds good. Start with setting the stage, right? As you mentioned, we're talking about the issue of poverty. Should abortion be allowed when a mother and or a mother and father are living in abject or severe poverty? This is something that comes up all the time. And I think it's important to kind of set the stage. Is this a relevant issue? Does this actually come up in conversation? We're going to start by kind of setting the stage. And I, um, you actually dug up this quote from a study by Diane Green Foster and her colleagues that was published in the American Journal of Public Health from the American Public Health Association, socioeconomic outcomes of women who receive and women who are denied wanted abortions in the United States. And Diane Green Foster had a pretty definitive and pretty powerful line that, that she kind of offers as a conclusion to this um, paper, right? Yeah, that's right. This is what she says, and I quote, 
laws that impose a gestational limit for abortion or otherwise restrict access to abortion will result in a worsened economic outcomes for women. Uh, so any sort of restrictions, it, it's, this is what she's saying, any sort of limits uh, or restrictions to abortion access has the result of worsening the economic situation and the outcome for women. When we're talking about the issue of abortion, uh, we certainly don't want to see women in difficult situations. We don't want to see them in impoverished situations. We don't want them to to make decisions that will make them more impoverished. So, but we also, you know, knowing who the preborn are, we also don't want them to have an abortion. So, what we want to do, like, we, we really want to uh, navigate our way through these waters in a way where we can both recognize the humanity of the preborn and the the lived out situation of the woman. Isn't that right, Cam? Oh, totally. And and I think it's important to look at at the fact that, you know, this obviously does not make the case for the morality of abortion. Obviously, abortion may allow people to have an easier time. Working full time may make an easier time for them to generate income. And there's a lot of things that could make it easier for people to generate income, right? Like if we didn't get sick, it'd be easier for us to, to generate income if we didn't have to go to our cousin's wedding or if we didn't have to worry about automobile problems or if we didn't have to worry about sleeping or a lot of these things. And I don't want to be flippant about um, childbirth and rearing children. Obviously, this is a very significant um, factor when it comes to our ability to raise children. I, I personally know many mothers who, um, though it, it's still the minority of pregnancies as a whole, the, these mothers have been bedridden for the last trimester, maybe even more of their pregnancy. And, and obviously during that time, they're not able to work. They're not able to provide necessarily for their, their existing family or for themselves or for their, their family as it grows, as that child is born, that sort of thing. And so I, I don't want to be flippant about the fact that having more children will create more financial strain on the family. But I, I think it's important to recognize that just because it puts financial strain on the family doesn't have any kind of factor on whether or not it's moral or not to kill an innocent human being to resolve that hardship, right? That, that this is something that that is a reality for a lot of women. It's a reality for a lot of couples as they find out that they're pregnant. The question, obviously, that we're going to touch on later is what are pr- appropriate solutions to these kind of challenging pregnancies, to these kinds of difficult circumstances that mothers and fathers can be faced with? Yeah, that's right. I think anyone listening to this, whether uh, you might, you're pro-life, whether you're pro-choice, whether you're not really sure, uh, I think everyone can understand and 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 everyone believes that we want to live in a just society. You know, a, si- a society that doesn't end the lives of the most vulnerable, uh, doesn't end the lives of uh, people who are, are in difficult situations, and and a society that uh, helps the vulnerable, um, whether they be born or preborn. And so uh, that's the conversation today. We want a just society that doesn't kill its most vulnerable victims of poverty uh, and in this situation that being the preborn children. So let's let's talk about this a little bit. Cam, we're in Canada. We'll we'll touch on the United States as well. Uh, I know we have listeners uh, from other places and and we can't touch on each and every country. So we apologize for that. But hopefully you have more stats where you live than we do in Canada. Because here in Canada, mothers who want to uh, abort their children, uh, want to get an abortion, they're not required to offer any sort of reason for why they're having an abortion. So they they don't have to 
uh, indicate, you know, that they're in a, a, a impoverished situation, uh, that they just want to have an abortion uh, because they, they had too many kids uh, already or because their birth control didn't work or anything like that. So because of that here in Canada, it's somewhat frustrating to know uh, where change really needs to happen. So we, we talk about poverty. We talk about uh, women who are struggling financially and economically. Uh, but in reality, we don't really know what percentage of women who get abortions fall into that camp. And so it's difficult to, to, to glean information. Exactly. And, and that's the thing. You mentioned that hopefully other countries have better reporting. Obviously, it, it's difficult to have worse reporting <laughs> than we have in Canada because, there, like you said, there is no impetus for mothers or for doctors to report any kind of rationale as to why the mother is choosing to have an abortion. And, and as you said, this is not about pro-lifers wanting to be able to point fingers at people and nullify their hard circumstances. This really is really disappointing, really frustrating because it limits how much we're actually able to help people, right? That, that if we knew that 85% of women who are choosing to have abortions were choosing to do so because of financial challenges or difficulties, that sort of thing, then we'd be able to develop not only social programs, whether run through churches, whether run through community groups or whatever sort of thing that are able to address those situations. If if a huge number of abortions are performed because of traumatic experiences like sexual assault or incest, then we'd be able to address more actively and more fully the education in our society, the punishment towards those guilty perpetrators, that sort of thing. If we knew more about why mothers were having abortions, we hopefully we would be able to respond we'd be able to better support those mothers and fathers. We'd be able to de develop programming, whether on a government level or whether on a societal level, to help and support and aid those mothers and fathers through whatever it is that, that they're challenging. And yet the case is, like you mentioned, that we don't actually know these numbers. And so we try to solve problems that we are anticipating exist. And, and often, as, and as we're going to get into, we can kind of learn lessons from our neighbors to the south in, in the states. And yet, not everything is the same, obviously, that, that we often talk about how similar American and Canadian society are. Obviously, there, there are a ton of similarities. And yet, there's also some differences, right? That, that we are significantly different when it comes to not only the, the social construct of our country and, and how we navigate different social issues and, and how arguably, I mean, many people characterize Canada as a much more socialist style country in our universal health care, in our um, social programming and social support and that kind of thing. And so there's obvious differences between Canada and the United States. And yet I think there are some important statistics and numbers that we can pull from our, our neighbors to the south who are able to track a little bit more accurately the reasons why patients and, and mothers and fathers down um, south of the border are choosing abortion. Yeah, so you you uh, uncovered this uh, research paper by the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood's research wing. Uh, that indicates some of the facts about abortion, and, and you have them uh, listed in, in front of you here. Could you just outline those a little bit, uh, Cam, and talk about, okay, so women who are getting an abortion, you know, what percentage of them uh, claim it's because of their economic situation or, or any of any of that? Mm -hmm. And so this this was just found, and, and we'll include this in, in the episode notes. This, like you said, is on the Guttmacher Institute website for induced abortion in the United States. And they show a stat saying that some 75% of abortion patients in 
2014 were poor. And what they mean by poor is having an income below the federal poverty level of $15,730 for a family of two in 2014, or low income, having an income of 100 to 199% of the federal poverty level. So up to twice the dollar value for the federal poverty level. So up to just over $30,000 American for a family of two. And even that isn't completely accurate. Uh, yeah. So you're saying 75%, 75% of, of abortion patients uh, are below the poverty line. No. So 75% of patients are either below the poverty line or within one. I, I'm forgetting the exact terminology of my stats courses that I took in university. It's not one standard deviation, but 75% um, of patients are below double the poverty line. And so 75% of the people who choose to have abortion in 2014 in America had a household income of less than $31,460 sort of thing, um, which is double the federal poverty level. Um, and so characterized either poor or low income. And an interesting stat that even goes along with that is that, so that was the socioeconomic um, bracket that these abortion um, receivers were in. And yet even that doesn't identify how many of them chose abortion specifically because of their socioeconomic situation, right? That, that certainly, I think it's fair to assume that many of those people, finances were a factor in why they were choosing abortion because they were either living below or close to the federal poverty level. And yet, as, as we'll get into with, with our, our joint experience or our, our individual experiences talking to people, oftentimes the people who are in those lower income brackets are often the ones who money is less of a factor for why they're choosing abortion. There's other factors that are going into it. We've certainly spoken to uh, incredible numbers of very, very passionate, very wonderful people who do live in that lower income bracket that are very proud to have chosen life for their children, who are navigating that financial strain on their family. And so yes, 75% of abortion patients in 2014 were from lower income demographics. And yet there isn't a stat actually on how many of them cited finances as the primary or even a, a major factor in why they chose abortion. And other statistics that, that are less well-defined have actually indicated that regardless of where people are in the socioeconomic kind of spectrum, they're oftentimes very similar in their likelihood of citing finances as one of the reasons. That, that there's a difficult time pinning down exact numbers, but there's a lot of people who even come from very high socioeconomic brackets that will cite poverty or will cite um, financial strain or hardship on the reason for having an abortion, which kind of throws the entire equation into an interesting question of what kind of finances are, are we anticipating? to actually raise a child, that sort of thing. I, there's another study here, an, an earlier one from 2003, 2004, again, done by the Guttmacher Institute that found 23% of women citing economics as the reason they chose abortion. Again, obviously, this is a voluntary submission of their rationale. And so tragically, there's some people who will state one reason uh, when really it's another reason we know from, from many case studies that there's a lot of people who are coerced into abortion. There's a lot of people who have abortions or pressured into abortions because of family pressure, because of things even as traumatizing as sexual assault, but they're worried about um, the response. And so they'll, they'll actually um, state 
um, initially that it was because of economic issues or or schooling issues when really there are deeper underlying issues, that kind of thing. And so, but that, those are the numbers that we have to work with that approximately 23%. There was another poll done between 2008 and 2010 that pulled around 1,000 women that showed 40% of those polled cited financial reasons as being factors for why they chose abortion, though it didn't ask them which was the biggest reason. And so the, the numbers, all, um, as you can see, kind of go on a spectrum. But I think that, that it, it definitely demonstrates the fact that this is a relevant factor in the minds of many mothers who are choosing abortion. Yeah, that's right. And I mentioned earlier that we don't really know where things are in Canada, but I thought I would do a quick search uh, of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada website to see if they had anything to say on it. And they published a paper. I don't know if they published it or just uh, posted it on their website titled, Why Do Women Have Abortions? And I, I'm not really sure. Um, they don't reference any studies. I'm not really sure where some of this data comes from. But one of the main reasons uh, that they cite as why women get an abortions are because of financial reasons. They uh, Here they write, many women state they have no real choice as they do not have the financial resources to support themselves and a child. So even though there's no stats behind that, the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, who we don't always trust, uh, but they do cite uh, that financial insecurities and economic difficulties are why women do access abortion here in Canada. Indeed. And and so and and this is something that to to try to transition into that second um, stage of the episode, as you can tell, I, I don't know how many people can tell this actually, but we're recording first thing on a Monday morning, um, which is a great time to do a lot of things. This is the first time we've recorded the podcast first thing on a Monday morning. So Maddie Maddie Halleck, who is a great friend and colleague of ours working in Winnipeg, he is going to do a beautiful job splicing this all together, cutting out all of our awkward pauses and whatnot as we're reaching for the coffee and whatever other stimulants we're trying to use to, to get our brains in gear. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So, so let's dive into the next part, Cam, uh, talking about our experience. Now, um, I, I think let's outline uh, briefly what we mean by poverty. And uh, just so we're all on the same page, uh, the working definition that we're using here is complete or partial inability to provide the necessities of life for your child. Um, that's what we're talking about when it comes to the abortion conversation. Now, I don't know about you, Cam, but uh, well, I do know you've had a lot of conversations, but I don't know how a lot of your conversations have gone. But there are times when I've talked to people who are, you know, who who do mention to you that they're in difficult uh, situations, uh, difficult financial situations. And often they don't cite that as a justification for abortion quite as much as uh, people who I meet at swanky universities, people who I meet in, uh, you know, swanky neighborhoods. Uh, or really nice high schools uh, or all of that. It seems to be, now, I, I don't know why, maybe you have a theory for this, but it seems to be, in my experience and in the conversations that I have, that the people who are more well-off uh, justify abortion using poverty and financial reasons more than people who are not so well-off. Do you have this as well, or, or am I, am I you know, totally alone in this? No, I've definitely found a very similar trend here doing most of my activism out of Calgary. I've done it in other places across Canada and in the States as well. But but I've definitely found that same trend. And and to cite a couple of concrete examples from my own experience, a lot of the the outreach that we do is in downtown Calgary. And, and I remember in the span of a single choice chain display, one of our displays where we show the reality of what abortion does, very early in the event, in, in this display, I spoke to a young woman who was actually... Um, 
as she characterized it, in between homes. And so she was currently homeless. She'd been kicked out of her family's home um, and and was looking for work to be able to get into um, housing, um, subsidized housing elsewhere in the city. And so she was actually living on the streets at the time. And she explained to me that, you know what, if I become pregnant, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to have an abortion. I'm going to raise this kid and and it's not going to be perfect, but I'm going to be able to raise this child and it's going to be a um, a best case scenario sort of thing. I had a five minute more conversation with her. It was great having that conversation. And then later on in that exact same question, I spoke to this woman that came out of a very, very swanky restaurant downtown on, on Stephen Ave. It was clear that she and her work colleagues had gone there for a work lunch, and she told me that there was absolutely no way that she could financially afford to have a child at this time in her life. She was within the first 10 years of her career. She was working at a law firm, and that there was just absolutely no way that she could possibly afford to care for a child at, at that point. And this was actually the primary reason why she was advocating in favor of abortion. And and I just found it so interesting. And I think that one of the lessons that I took from it, and I don't want to paint with too broad of strokes, but I think that for some people who grow up in lower socioeconomic brackets, they realize just how manageable it is to raise a child. That they they don't necessarily hear all of the, the crazy stories about how it costs a million dollars to raise a child or quality of life for a child is going to be terrible if they're not able to access X, Y, and Z attractions and entertainment and, and movies and all this kind of stuff. And when you come from a lower socioeconomic bracket, from what I've found, oftentimes you realize just how manageable having children can be. Certainly, I've met people that have said, you know what, I, I grew up in a very low-income family, and while I want to provide, provide a higher quality of life, I don't want to live in the same degree of poverty that I grew up in, at least I know that it's doable. At least I know that you can raise a child in those situations and have them grow up to be at least as decent of a human being as I am, sort of thing. Uh, this is coming from the person that, that is explaining this to me. Whereas the, the gist that I got from this second woman that I spoke to, who was within the first 10 years of being a lawyer and eating out at very, very swanky restaurants, maybe sometimes when people grow up with a higher kind of quote-unquote standard of living or quality of life, it's more tempting or it's easier to fall into this notion that to provide a quality upbringing for your child, it really does cost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And if you don't currently have that in your checking account or your savings account, then you're not ready to have a child. I know that there's a lot of conversation about being responsible in your parenting and being prepared. And you want to have the house and the, the locked-in career and the vehicles and everything before you start your family. And I think that that is, is just showing this massive divide in our society, in, in where the priorities are, in how we think of children and our responsibility towards children. Do we actually have the responsibility of bringing our kids to Disneyland every year, that sort of thing. That, that from my experience, I've seen time and again that, that those in lower socioeconomic brackets have a, an easier time with the notion of raising children in less than ideal, less than perfect financial situations than those who are coming often from a higher socioeconomic. And, and I can cite a, a ton more stories, but I'm, I'm curious, is that similar for you? 
Yeah, yeah, no, it, it certainly is. And, and as you're talking about that, I was just thinking about my son. Um, as I've mentioned before, my wife and I have a son and we're expecting our second child, which we're super excited about. But but my son, you know, we could buy him the most expensive toys and he will still play with the toilet paper roll. <laughs> like, like he, he doesn't need any of that. Um, and, and he gets, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot of new clothes. He gets a lot of uh, from ha- hand-me-downs from people that we know. Uh, my wife uh, has a few secondhand baby clothes stores uh, that she loves to go to. And my son couldn't care less if it's brand new or if it's super old. He's going to put holes in the knees anyway. And he's going to roll around in the dirt regardless. And, and he looks great. You know, we got to give him a bath every night regardless <laughs> of what he's wearing. Um, but I don't want to deny, you know, we, we have a kid as well. I, it is expensive to raise a child. I, I mean, I remember when I was living alone and had expenses just for myself and thought, wow, when I got married, you know, those expenses just skyrocketed. But then we had a son and uh, and they went up even more. So it is, it is it does cost a lot of money. It is expensive. But uh, there are certainly ways to do this. And you have a daughter as well, Cam, a wonderful daughter who you send pictures of regularly, which is great. <laughs> um, you could probably say the same same thing, no? Oh, totally. For the for the last six months, her favorite toy is a pink spatula that we have that, that she'll like crawl over the toys that my parents and my wife's parents have, have bought us for Christmas and birthdays and whatever. And she'll just go for the spatula or like the, the measuring cups or things like that. And so I, again, yeah, there are costs, obviously, that go along with having having a kid. And there's a conversation to be had, um, again, circling back to that definition of the complete or partial inability to provide the necessities of life. Every parent wants to provide far above the necessities of life, right? That, that nobody is going to be satisfied by being like, oh, well, you had your three meals today and you have, you're wrapped up in a paper bag and what more do you need in life sort of thing? Like, why do you keep complaining child that's like 16 and, and still living in a paper bag sort of thing? <laughs> like the, the parents obviously want to provide a, uh, as joy filled of an experience for their child and through their childhood as they possibly can. And it's important to, to talk about, yeah, the quality of life. But but if we hone in on the complete or partial inability to provide the necessities of life, that's where I think the conversation needs to be directed more so right now. Yeah. So so as as we think about this, uh, I think briefly, let's talk a little bit about some of the solutions uh, that we could present. Now, we're an organization that has conversations in the streets. We're not counselors, uh, as we've mentioned to people many times. And we don't often have the the solutions as we talk to, you know, 10,000 people over the course of 10 years. We can't provide a solution for each and every one of them, as you know. So, uh, but briefly, Cam, before we have a conversation about uh, how we can have a conversation with someone uh, when they bring up a poverty or, or their economic situation as justification for abortion, what are some solutions and, you know, an attitude change, perhaps, if uh, we expect only the best for our child? Um, in terms of the best stroller and the most expensive everything. So perhaps we, we can talk about an attitude, an attitude change and having uh, that discussion. But what are some, some, some areas that we could focus on that we could discuss that would provide some relief for people within these situations? Yeah. And, and like I said, let, let's hone in on those who are literally not able to provide the necessities of life. And I think the first thing that we need to be aware of are the incredible, incredible pregnancy care centers across the country. Whether independent, whether connected with um, a network of pregnancy care centers, there are an incredible number of pregnancy care centers across this country that have not only the diapers, the clothing, the physical resources, the prenatal vitamins, that sort of thing that many parents need as the necessities 
for their, the livelihood and welfare of their children, but they're also connected with a huge number of government and private entities that are able to connect with further support. I remember working with a pregnancy care center here in Calgary, and they were sharing with me how they were connected with 30-some-odd different agencies, like I said, private and public included, that were able to help mothers connect with affordable housing with um, at-home work so they can continue to pay the bills, that they're able to get connected with financial support for ongoing perishable food, that, that it's important that you're not simply raising your child on canned tuna and getting like 10,000 cans of tuna from your, your food shelter, but there's a, a huge number of food banks and and very, very secure locations that you're not going to have to run the gauntlet past all of your high school classmates as you pick up this this bag of food. No, they're very conscious of the the social anxiety that can go into asking for help and receiving help. And these pregnancy care centers do a wonderful job of meeting the needs of the people that connect with them. And yet, we need to we need to share that more and more frequently. I think the pregnancy care centers in Calgary, especially, have done a wonderful job of being very prominent, very easy to connect with. I, I see their ads on the backs of buses all the time. They've got um, bus benches and on the buses themselves ads about the support they can provide, that kind of thing. And yet. There's help that's provided by pregnancy care centers. There's help that even churches are able to provide directly through their their congregation and their support base. There's government agencies. There's even um, programs at the high school, university, and college levels, right? That, that there are schools that are particularly geared towards helping mothers and fathers navigate financial stress so they don't have to sacrifice their their careers, their education. Um, there's government agencies that can help mothers um, navigate all sorts of different financial hardship. But at the end of the day, like you mentioned, in, in some ways there needs to be a shift of attitude. Um, and I'll actually cite a, a separate example to try to clarify this point. So before I started working for CCBR, I, I lived in Victoria. And while I was at university, I was involved in a youth youth group at, at the church that I was attending. There was a group of, of young men and women who were providing this youth development and social opportunity for, for kids in the church. And this was the sweetest group of young men and women I've ever met. They were so, so kind and generous, and they were so loving towards the kids that came in um, from all different backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. And yet, within the first six months, I realized that none of these youth group leaders were willing to receive any help. They all wanted to offer help. They all wanted to help the people around them, but nobody was willing to be helped because of this perceived vulnerability, that nobody wants to be perceived as weak. Nobody wants to be perceived as vulnerable. Nobody wants to be perceived as needing help. And I think that's one of the huge challenges that we need to overcome in society that this is a, a shift in attitude that we have to, each of us, each and every one of us, not just those who are in difficult circumstances pertaining to pregnancy, but, but each and every one of us. This is kind of a, a cam ramble, I suppose, right now. But we need to be more willing to ask for help because there are mountains of help, both material, social, um, emotional, psychological, spiritual, all that kind of help available. 
And yet we have a steady stream of people going directly to the abortion facility. And whether that's because they view it easier to simply have the abortion than to ask for help, I don't always know. But I have met some people who have told me that exact thing, that when when it came to their their pride, ultimately, their self-esteem in their ability to provide on their own, they didn't want to have to ask for help, they, they were embarrassed to ask for help, that is a terrible reason for somebody to have to die our inability to ask for help. And so there is support available. The local pregnancy care centers, maybe you're living in a community that doesn't have its own pregnancy care center. I know there are lots of groups that are willing to help at distance um, with whatever financial strain, whatever difficulties you may be encountering. There's a ton of help available through churches, through pregnancy care centers, through government agencies, through university bursaries, all that sort of thing. That's kind of where I come at this from. Yeah, just a note on the the bit about pregnancy resource centers on CCBR's website and thekilling.ca, we have a link at the top that says pregnant need help. And that uh, directs you to another website that we have, which, which is www.helpforpregnancy.ca. And it's for people who are facing an unplanned or crisis pregnancy uh, to know that they are not alone. And uh, it lists uh, organizations that are in Canada by province uh, that will walk people through the difficult situations that they're facing and will help them have good and, and meaningful conversations about abortion. So uh, we're going to put this in this website in the description notes as well, helpforpregnancy.ca. Uh, it's a good one to, to jot down. And if you ever meet someone who is in a difficult situation, perhaps uh, you can connect someone, uh, connect them to someone or an organization in your community that will help them out. Okay, so let's, uh, let's cap this off, Cam. Uh, let's talk about how we can have a conversation on abortion when someone brings up the issue of poverty. And now, you know, we've we've mentioned this before. We don't want to, you know, resolve every issue. Well, we do what we would love to resolve every issue, but we can't resolve every issue, you know, in the conversation or or any issue that we're facing at any given time. But how can we respond in a way that is both meaningful and recognizes the difficulty that of the person that we're talking to, but also recognizes the humanity of the preborn, uh, I'd like to highlight. We've mentioned this before, and uh, and Cam, we should mention this more and more and more. Uh, three key points or that that we need to remember. Three key things that we all use in our conversations here at CCBR uh, that are extremely helpful to us. Uh, they are jot them down, write them down, commit them to memory. Common ground, analogy, and question. So in conversation, someone brings uh, a, a, an issue or a situation to us. Uh, this is how we respond with using common ground, analogy, question, common ground. Uh, well, let's uh, let's do a mock dialogue, Cam. I come I come to, to you and uh, I mention, you know, it's great that you're doing, but I think abortion should be legal in the case uh, of financial insecurity. What would you you know, how would you start that off? Uh, when you're talking to someone on the street. Indeed. So so my first step is to build common ground. I'm going to say something along the lines of, you know what, you and I can agree that raising a child in severe poverty, not knowing where the next meal or the next month's rent are going to come from is incredibly, incredibly difficult. This is something that we need to alleviate for a ton of parents across the country. So I'm going to connect with them with that common ground, show that, that, yeah, I realize that this is an issue that many people deal with. It's very real. It needs to be addressed. Yeah. Point two, though, instead of trying to resolve that, trying to connect them with the resources and, and, and money that they need, I really want to get to the heart of the issue because regardless of whether we can or can't currently resolve it, 
abortion is not allowed. So the se- second step that I'm going to do is build an analogy, like you said. And, and so I'm going to say something to the effect of, imagine that a single mother who was currently able to provide for her two-year-old son tragically lost her job in an economic recession, and she was no longer able to provide the essentials of life. Would we ever consider suggesting to her that she kills her two-year-old son to cope with that economic hardship that's now been placed upon her and her family? And I'm going to wrap that up with a question that's going to pivot from the conversation about the circumstance to the conversation about the humanity of the preborn by asking if we're not willing to kill a born child to help a mother navigate a situation of poverty, then why are we willing to kill a preborn child for the exact same reason? Yeah, I, I remember a conversation I had on the streets just to, to outline this. And, and I'll basically be repeating what Cam just mentioned because that's how my conversation went. But I, I remember this one uh, specifically. I think the only reason I remember it is because the, the woman I was talking to was super expressive, uh, very, very expressive. So we were having a conversation. I was showing her an image of what abortion does to a preborn child. She was shocked by the image uh, and yet still thought that abortion should be legal in this particular situation. And so I created common ground with her. I said, you know, I, I haven't grown up in this situation, but I can understand uh, that not having finances uh, for to, to support you for every month, not knowing perhaps where your next meal is going to come from. Uh, and all of these difficult things are extremely, extremely difficult. And we we as a society uh, ought to be doing what we can um, to to help those in these difficult situations. And then I use the analogy. I, I even use the two-year-old kids. Some people use one years old. Some people use three. Some people use three months after birth. I use two years old. That's my go-to. I said, well, l- let me ask you, a qu- let me uh, uh, share a story with you. Let's say uh, that a woman is in a difficult situation, uh, but she decides to go through with the pregnancy anyway, knowing that she has a number of support. She has a, a job. She has a husband uh, or a boyfriend. So she decides to go through with the pregnancy. She gives birth to a, a wonderful little child and the child uh, grows up a little bit. And, and when the child is two years old, uh, she loses those supports. So she she becomes a single mom. She loses her job. Uh, perhaps she gets cut off from uh, a number of other supports that she may have enjoyed. And she's considering uh, her options. She's considering how to go forward. And, and then I, I went to the question, should she be allowed? Do you think that she should be allowed to end the life of her two-year-old child now because she's in a difficult situation? And this is where her expressive nature came in. She pretty much jumped backwards. I was like, no, 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 like, absolutely not. That should never be allowed. I can't believe you would ever suggest that. And I was like, no, no, I'm not suggesting it. I'm just, I'm just curious. And I'm really, really glad uh, that that's your answer. And so I asked a follow-up question. If we shouldn't be allowed to end the life of that two-year-old child because the mother and the family is in a difficult um, financial situation, why should we be allowed to end the life of the very same child for the very same reason before birth. And she thought about that and she looked at me and she thought about it a little bit more. And uh, we had a little bit more of a conversation about the humanity of the preborn child, which is where that question was leading to. And she left the conversation pro-life. She told me that abortion should never be okay after that short conversation that we had on the streets of Toronto. And, And that was the way that we walked through the issue of poverty and and how to resolve it 
um, not not to resolve it per se, uh, but to recognize the humanity and to show that there ought to be other solutions uh, in these situations. Cam, I'm sure you have stories like this as well. Yeah, yeah, very similar. And I remember talking to somebody down on one of our Florida Abortion Awareness Project mission trips uh, a couple years ago and having a conversation with somebody who grew up in abject poverty. They literally spent much of their childhood, their, their parents um, were addicted to drugs, um, out of work for a lot of time. They grew up in very, very severe poverty. They actually spent a lot of their childhood stealing food. And initially, this fella talked to me about, you know what, I, I don't think that children should be brought into that kind of poverty. I don't think that anybody should be forced to endure that. And, and similar to you, I, I didn't try to resolve it by saying, oh, well, there's money available because then I, I knew that I would have gotten into a, okay, well, what happens when the money runs out? I didn't try to get into a nullifying, oh, this doesn't happen very often because he says, okay, well, what about people like me? Sure, it doesn't happen very often, but it happened to me. What do you say to that? I didn't want to refute or resolve it. I wanted to respond to it by connecting with him, by bridging that gap. And so again, I, I said, you know what? I, I'm really sorry that you endured that through your childhood. And I know that nobody here in this pro-life organization that I'm working with wants anybody to have to endure that now or any time in the future. Imagine that we met somebody right now who is enduring that with a two-year-old child. I, I don't know exactly why it is that I, I always go back to a two-year-old child. I think that it's because we have an, an easier time connecting with them even in some ways because they're running around, they're chattering, they're um, engaging with, with friends and family, all that kind of stuff. Imagine that we met somebody right now who is going through what you went through. That, that this mother or father, whoever it was that was trying to look after the kid, was doing a terrible job of doing it. And we looked into the eyes of this child and the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that they were enduring. Would we ever consider killing that child who was living in poverty to help them escape the suffering and hardship that they were enduring? And he looked at me and said, no, obviously not. That's why I now volunteer in... Um, in shelters and whatnot. Uh, this guy was literally working for a ministry in Florida that would go into homes of people who were passed out on drugs and would like not not kidnap the kids, but like get the kids out of there, give them a free meal, give them um, some new clothing, give them some some teaching opportunities because many of these kids weren't going to school. And then they'd go back home once their parents were were awakening, that kind of thing. And he, he shared this with me and I said, okay, good. Uh, we're not going to kill a two-year-old. And so if we're not going to kill a two-year-old because their parents are doing a poor job or are incapable of providing even necessities of life, why a preborn child? And that pivoted towards the four questions of the human rights argument that, that I often use, Peter. I know that you use them as well. You use them possibly a little bit differently in the language, um, but this transitioned excellently towards the conversation about the humanity of the preborn and the principle of whether or not we can kill an innocent human being to solve even the hardest of circumstances. Because that's what we're getting at by focusing on the humanity. We're focusing on the fact that even if we're not able to resolve, even if we're not able to refute these circumstances, we still are not able 
to kill preborn children to solve these problems. And so we talked through the human rights argument. We talked through a lot of the content that we covered in episode two about the humanity of the preborn, tracing our human lives back to the moment of fertilization, that sort of thing. And similar to you, this fellow walked away completely pro-life, realizing that you know what? He no longer looked at these kids and say, you know what? I, I can't do anything now, but I, I just wish that you had been aborted. Difficult. What a hard statement to look somebody in the eye and to think that or to even say that. Um, now he was walking away because of the common ground analogy question, because of the focus on the humanity of the preborn. He was able to say, no, I don't think any human should be aborted, even in these situations of poverty, abject poverty. Let me just highlight for a moment the human rights argument. It's a key element of our apologetics here at CCBR. It's something that you use all the time, something that I use all the time. I remember uh, just a, a, a short story here because uh, we do need to wrap up. I remember uh, I did a, a, a GAP project. It's now AAP, the Abortion Awareness Project, which is a one-week project. And I did an internship with uh, a good friend of mine. We became friends during the work we did with CCBR. And he never used the human rights argument, but no one actually knew it. Um, but when what, this is what he said, when he heard the human rights argument, he was like, this is so simple. It can't work like we can't expect people to be this dumb and like to to have this dumb of an argument and uh, and it, it to actually work. So no one actually knew that he wasn't using this this argument until the end of the internship when he shared with us. Uh, this was in 2015, so quite some time ago. He shared with us that, yeah, so he wasn't using this argument to begin with, but he was like, you guys are using it so often and you keep having these testimonies and I wasn't getting them. So I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just try it. So I learned this argument and I use it on the streets. And guess what, guys? It actually works. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is what he said, and he's used it ever since, which is absolutely great. So the human rights argument is, uh, the first question, do you believe in human rights? Uh, most people will say yes. Uh, the second question is, who should get human rights? Who should get the human right to life? And most people will say human. And then the, the next question is, if two, or when two humans reproduce, what species is their offspring? Again, the answer is human. Uh, another question you could ask uh, is, if something is growing, doesn't that mean it's alive? And uh, they would typically say yes. And you could end that session uh, or, or close it all up, wrap it all up by asking if all humans should get human rights and if two humans reproduce other humans that in the womb, those young preborn children are humans, doesn't it logically follow that abortion, which ends the life of that young human being, is a human rights violation? So that that is, uh, write that down. Uh, it'll be on our website as well. Maybe we'll put it in the in the show notes as well, Cam. Um, so that you can copy and paste it if you're using your cell phone or your laptop. But that's the human rights argument, absolutely key. And then common ground analogy question. We hope to tackle a bunch of other justifications for abortion as well. And for every single one, we are going to be using common ground analogy and question uh, as a way to frame the conversation, as a way to frame how we respond to the people we're talking to in the streets. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We are the Pro-Life Guys. My name is Peter. That's Cam. We're two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of pre-born children in Canada. And this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. And we certainly hope that the content we're creating is doing that. We have heard, as Cam mentioned at the beginning of the show, some great feedback from some of you uh, as we are beginning this journey into the podcast world. We are 
Uh, I can't remember what episode we th- this one is. Maybe number eight. Uh, so quite new to this still. And uh, and some of the feedback that, that we've been hearing has been exceptionally good. And we've taken it and we're trying to learn from every part of it. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. And even if you don't have feedback and just want to reach out for any other reason, by all means, we'd love to hear from you. You can do that at our website, www.prolifeguys.com. You can find us on Facebook, The Pro-Life Guys. You can find us on Instagram, at Pro-Life Guys. Or you can shoot us an email, email at prolifeguys.com. Cam, any final statements from you, my friend? Um, just just keep giving us the, the questions that you want to have answered. If you have videos that you want us to dissect, if you have arguments that you want us to be able to respond to to help you out in the conversations that you're having, please do so. As Peter mentioned, give us a shout out for where you're from. I'm looking at um, this right now. We got a, most of our audience, as Peter said, is from Canada and the States. But we've got a couple people from India, a couple people from Honduras, a bunch of people from the Netherlands and um, and other places. We got a handful of people coming in from Australia, and so we want to we want to connect with you. We want to find out what is going to be most helpful for you. We want to do a bunch more of these episodes that address particular topics that come up in conversation to give a streamlined, concrete. Um, route for responding to them and if you like this format of talking about kind of the the abstract background of of the issue in particular then kind of our personal experience with how this has been brought up in our own experiences and then kind of wrapping it up with how we respond to it please let us know if you like that if you don't like it if you think that we should be structuring this differently we want to make this as meaningful and as useful as possible for you, our listener. And so hit us up. Let us know if you think there's people that we should be interviewing, people that that you want us to be able to have on the show. Let us know. We want to do that as well. And yeah, keep it coming. Get your friends connected on on, on this podcast. We are building an audience right now, but we're not going to have any swag. We're not going to have any kind of goodies for you to take away until we hit some particular thresholds. I think our first threshold is having 500 subscribers that we're looking for. We're about halfway there. Um, If you want to get some sweet Pro-Life Guy swag, then invite your friends because we're not doing it until we get enough subscribers to make it worthwhile and meaningful. So invite your friends, invite your family. Um, Don't just set up a whole bunch of separate IP addresses so that um, you're force multiplying by counting for 10 different viewers yourself get get more people in on this and help us to make this show as good as it possibly can be that's right and one last note uh, a lot of what we talk about can be found in the wonderful pro-life resource stuck it's a new book by our colleague justina van man and you can find it on uh, our website you can find it on yeah yeah you can find it on the website we'll put it in the show notes as well a link to that and uh, that is a wonderful resource that helps you have conversations. It shares with you a lot of the background information, a lot more than we can cover here. And uh, will certainly help you have better conversations about abortion. One last thing. I know this is kind of like the the ending to the Return of the King, the Lord of the Rings movie, where it like black sound, then white sound, then black sound, then white sound. And it keeps psyching you out for when it's actually going to end. Shout out to my my colleagues, our colleagues, I should say, in Winnipeg. They are running a Winnipeg crash course 
um, the first weekend of October. I believe the early bird deadline has just passed, but you can still register for this course. If you're in Manitoba, um, you can still register. You'll get to meet me. I'll be one of the speakers there. My colleague, Kyle Coffey, will also be speaking. I think Maddie Halleck, our incredible, I'm going to call him our producer. I don't know what the technical job description for producer is, but Maddie does a lot of the behind the scenes work on this show. He'll be there as well. Uh, we'll be talking about how you can have productive, compelling, compassionate conversations about abortion. About abortion. If you're in Manitoba or if you want to go to Manitoba to connect with us, um, please do so. The first weekend of October 2020, we are doing a crash course. It'll be a Friday, Saturday event. You'll get some activism experience. You'll join us. You'll be able to change some minds with the newly learned skills that you've gained Check that out. Um, we'll put a, a link to the Eventbrite website um, in the notes on this show as well. So please do check that out. And yeah, I hope to see you there. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. And we hope you join us again next week. Take care, everyone.